chapter 4. We have, uh, we have been going through the book of Acts at warp speed, right? Um, at least for me, as it took four years to get through Luke, but um, it's taken four weeks to get through a lot of Acts so far. So anyway, we are going through Acts, and we're looking at the history of our witness. Uh, it's important for us to go back in order to go forward, right? We go back to find who we've always been as God's people, as the church, so that we can be discerning about who Christ calls us to be in our present now. And with that, um, we've seen uh, Jesus bestow an identity on his people, that they are witnesses. It's not something they have to do. It is what they are. Jesus' followers are witnesses. And, and, and we've seen the reality of the Spirit, God's empowering presence to form a community that does bear witness to Jesus. And we've seen last week in chapter 3 that that Spirit-filled, Jesus-witnessing community bears a picture of restoration, right? of, of um, what it looks like to be re- a restored humanity and what it looks like to offer restoration uh, to those uh, in need. And so uh, what we've seen this last week is the church begins to face outward. There's this interchange between the church and the world, and that interchange is what I want to drill in on today. Um, if there is one uh, thing that comes up over and over and over within our own culture as an obstacle to Christian faith having validity, I think, I think, and tell me if you think I'm wrong after, uh, I think one of the single greatest obstacles to the Christian message is this idea of Christ's exclusivity, that he is the only way. Like that, that, that feels really counterintuitive to most of how our culture feels, right? Like, it just feels like, that, that seems like we can't say that, right? Um, and so, other than maybe Christians' poor witness, I think this claim, this exclusive claim of Christ's uniqueness is one of the greatest obstacles that we face in terms of the, the content of our faith. This notion that Christ is the only ultimate authority, that tr- his truth measures all other small t truths, it's a rub. It's a rub for us as North American, largely individualistic consumer people. Like We just don't feel like that makes sense. And uh, at best, maybe the response is indifference, like, yeah, it's cool for you. Maybe at worst, it's just flat-out opposition. Maybe you lose your job. I don't know. But there's some, like, sense of antagonism that, like, not only is that not cool for you, it's bad for all of us. Stop saying it, you know? Um, And so if we're going to be honest, if we're going to be perceptive witnesses in our culture to Christ, then I got to say, we have to wrestle with the exclusive claims of Christ. Like, we need to do that. We just need to wrestle through it. So that's what we're going to do this morning. Um, And here's... Here's what I would say is so important for us to see at this foundational stage of the church. Um, that The exclusive claims of Christ were uh, not, uh, they, they weren't received with any more gladness in the first century world than they are today, okay? Um, it's easy to think that it's like harder for secular modern people to relate to a message of Christ's exclusivity. Like we just think, well, we're modern, we're secular, we just... We're past that, and they were naive back then. What I want to say to you is the record we have of what happened says that it wasn't actually easy for any first century people to embrace this message. It wasn't easier for them than it is for us. It might have actually been harder. Um, The exclusive claims of Christ were, if not as repugnant, more repugnant to them than they are today. 
And so uh, it's important for us to look at the soil out of which Christianity grew because it was actually just as hostile to the exclusive claims of Christ. In the ancient Roman world, in which the book of Acts is unfolding, there were three baseline assumptions about what we would come to call religion. Right? There were many gods, right? Many gods, yeah, you know the mythologies, right? There's the god of war, Mars, and there's the god of love, Aphrodite, or I don't know the Roman version, is it Venus? Anyway, uh, thank you. Fact checker in the middle. Um, and so uh, what you have is many gods. There's just an inherent religious pluralism that's assumed across the board in the ancient world. Okay, you with me? The second assumption is that each one of those gods has limited sovereignty, that they have little jurisdictions, right? And so if you cross over into the line of love, you're done in the jurisdiction of the god of war. Well, maybe not. Sometimes love feels like war, and maybe you need to borrow from Mars. I don't know. But when we get into it, each god has limited jurisdiction, limited sovereignty, and then therefore there is the third thing, no supreme god at all. Right? You don't actually have any one God that calls all the others into account. And so the religious pluralism of the day was common, as common as our own. Uh, one uh, early Christianity scholar, Larry Hurtado, says that uh, early Christianity represented a new kind of what we would come to call religion, something that had not quite been seen before and something that proved revolutionary in what religion came to mean thereafter. In other words, words, the world hadn't seen anything like what these first Christians were bearing witness to. And so we left off last week with the church growing, right? There's, there's 5,000 people in the Jerusalem church. The first church was not a house church. The first church was a megachurch. It just was. I don't know. What do you call 5,000 people, right? That's a big, stinking church, And it had its problems and all that kind of stuff, but there's 5,000 people who believe the way, and they're like gathering together, and they're pulling their resources, and it's this amazing move of the Spirit. But then at the same time, the leaders, Peter and John, are being opposed, and they're being persecuted, and we're about to see they're on trial, essentially. And it shows that the ancient world was not ready to accept the truth claims of Christ any more than our world. So that the message of the cross, the message of the resurrection... It didn't somehow just settle in on ears that were more naive than ours. If anything, ancient people were far less naive than modern people because their life wasn't digital. Their life was physical. They knew the limits and the realities of human life probably better than we do. So they're not naive. They know dead people stay dead. Okay? So let's read our Bibles, all right? All right, Acts chapter 4, verse 5. On the next day, uh, their rulers, the Jewish rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas, the high priest, and Caiaphas, and John, and Alexander, and all who were of the high priestly family. It was a public event. And when they had set them in their midst, they inquired, by what power or by what name did you do this? Remember that this is last week we saw Peter restore health to a guy who was born crippled, right? So we had a guy who couldn't walk, who's now walking. So by what power, what authority, what gives you license to do this? Heal this guy. Verse 8, Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, remember, because that's what the Spirit does, he helps people bear witness to Jesus, right? So the Spirit comes, he fills Peter, and Peter says, rulers and people and elders, if we're being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, I love the way he frames that, right? Like, 
See, we're on trial because we did a good thing to a lame guy. Okay, let's keep talking. Uh, If we're being examined concerning the good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, then let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, and has become the cornerstone. And so he says in verse 12, And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And so the religious establishment is concerned about power. By what power? By what authority? Are you doing this, right? What's the religious establishment's relationship to power? Keep it, right? Like, it's, it's, they're self-interested. They want to preserve power. What's Peter's relationship to the power? Power's gone through him to a crippled person. Right? He's a servant, right? He's selfless with power. And so Peter says, if, if we're being examined, right, for doing a good thing to a lame guy... Right? If this guy who was, had, social, or had zero social capital right, is actually restored to society and community and he's restored to life and vitality, if that's what you're upset about, right, like just checking to see what you're really upset about, then let it be known that Jesus did it. Like that's, that was what Jesus was about. You crucified him, God raised him from the dead. And as we frame this conversation around the exclusive claims around Jesus, what I want to say is let's pay attention to the character in which those claims were made. Because Peter's saying, actually, Jesus exclusively healed a guy that was broken. Like, if we're talking about what it is that Jesus has exclusive rights to, it's restoring humanity. This guy that was crippled is now walking. And so the character in which these claims are offered are restorative, and they're servant-oriented. It was a good deed done to a crippled person. Someone who is a no one got something that no one else could offer. And we're saying, yeah, Jesus did that. And so Peter's saying what God has done through the death and resurrection of Jesus was his plan all along. He's a stone that the builders rejected, and he's actually the cornerstone. In other words, Jesus is uniquely qualified to have our worship And it leads to this claim, there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Double negative. No one else, no other name. Exclusive claim, right? Like, that's what he's saying. Make no mistake, our faith makes an exclusive claim about the uniqueness of Jesus. It just does. Like, there is no mistake about that. Uh, And it's utterly offensive to modern secular sensibilities, and it was offensive to the ancient ones, too. And so when this claim to the uniqueness of Jesus and his exclusivity, when it, w- when it was made, it was made in hostile soil. But I want to point out four realities today that I think help us see why it grew anyway and that I think help us today. So four things. Two things relate to how we think. Two things relate to how we live. So a couple of thoughts and a couple of practices, if you will. So um, let's look at how Christ's exclusivity actually... Um, was received as good news. And let's wrestle through it. First thing. All right. Seatbelts buckled. You ready? Okay. Uh, The exclusive claims of Jesus were inevitable conclusions, but they would have been actually impossible inventions. It's really easy to kind of look back on the Christ story and the prominence that Christianity has had in Western society. You could go, well, it just clearly was a bid for power 
and people invented this because it validated their own community. Um, and I regularly hear this, like, yeah, I appreciate Jesus as a teacher, as a sage, as someone who exemplifies love, absolutely. I'm not sure which bits of the gospel they're reading and not reading, but um, it's simply, you know, they would say, it's not a tenable position, right, that he is the way, the truth, and the life. Like, that seems extreme, that salvation's found in no one else. Like, that's just maybe perhaps going too far. And by and large, we get to this position because we don't like arguments, even though our entire culture is apparently about arguments right now. And so we'd like to avoid relational conflict because we don't believe that I can disagree and still accept you, right? Which the gospel runs completely opposite to that, right? Like, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The, the message of the gospel is, yeah, you weren't agreeing at all with God, and he pursues you and accepts you. So um, we do believe that we can have relationship and hold disagreement. But our culture doesn't buy it. We're afraid, right, that way. And we also, as a culture, have a hard time uh, because we've divided public facts and private values. You can have your private faith, and that's somehow different than the world of reality. And so we've separated these things out where there's verifiable facts out in the world and there's the interior private world of values inside and you can think whatever you want. Well, here's the problem. We actually have no access to a Jesus who is just a teacher. Like that Jesus, we can't find him. If there was a Jesus that just was a good example, then we, we don't know him. We'd have no record of him. We only have a record of the one who said, before Abraham was born, I am. Like we have a Jesus who says insane things. Right? We don't have a Jesus who just says nice things. And by the way, the Jesus who only says nice things doesn't get crucified. Right? The Jesus who says, I am the temple, who says, I am God's presence, who says, I'm the son of man, who we all know means God's exalted uh, deliverer, right? Like who is actually on the throne of Yahweh. Like, well, that, that Jesus we have access to. And so he's either nuts or he has some qualifications to say this, right? And so what we have in the first disciples is this, this church that preached a Christ who was the Christ, not an exemplary figure. And here's the thing, they wouldn't have invented it because in the ancient world, you could go one of two directions. You could either become like a Western religious person or an Eastern religious person. I was in Pals the other day, and Christianity is under the category of Western religion, which I'm like, ah, would we say a Palestinian Jew is a Westerner? Probably not. But anyway, sure. Uh, just looking for that Rick McKinley book. Anyway, um, so here we are. And you could go one way or the other. The Western approach says there's many gods, and God can certainly take human form. Right? The Eastern approach says um, God's kind of in everything, and divinity can take human form. But Christianity comes out of a bunch of Jews who believe that there's one creator God, and he's never to be confused with his created order, right? There's, there's no way they're coming up with a human Yahweh. They just, they're just not coming up with it. The, actually, it was like by penalty of death, right, if you're going to go that route because no Jew would have ever come up with it. They're Hebrews, and so yet all the evidence says when Jesus was raised from the dead, they begin treating him as if he's God. They worship him, and Jesus doesn't turn down their worship. Why? Because he's uniquely qualified, Anybody gone and looked for a new doctor recently? So we did when we switched insurances last year. And um, when you go to find a new doctor, 
you're looking for qualifications, right? Is this going to fit with my family? If you have any special conditions, right, you're like, I need somebody who's really good with this one thing, right? And so, you know, you look through their record, and you're like, okay, University of Washington, John Hopkins, University of Azerbaijan, like, which one's going to be more qualified to you in Portland, Oregon? Right? No offense to Azerbaijan, if that's you, but, right? You're going to go, oh, I'm going to go with the really credible institution, right? the one that bears the most credibility within our world. And so what they're doing is they're looking at things Jesus says and things Jesus does and his resurrection, and they're saying, oh, he's uniquely qualified to receive our worship. He's uniquely qualified. And so this is what happens. They begin to treat him this way. And they end up going to the grave confessing this reality, which people don't usually go to the grave confessing a lie or something that they don't actually believe to be true. And so what I want to say in this first point is that when they treat Jesus as exclusively unique among other religious figures, it's not a rational invention within their context. Okay, are you with me on that? But it, but it, it seems to be an inevitable conclusion from spending three and a half years with him and being witness to his resurrection with 500 other people for 40 days. Right? You're going, I think he's uniquely qualified. Which leads us to the next thing. The second reality that we see here and is that I think it's important for us to grasp this, that the exclusive claims about Christ are actually no less exclusive than, religious, uh, than the claims of religious relativism. They're actually no less exclusive. When the Pharisees or Sadducees and the religious uh, establishment says, by what power, what authority, what license do you actually have to say these things, they're getting at an issue of power. In the ancient world, Christians were not, it wasn't a legalized, licensed thing to be a Christian in Rome until the 300s because Rome was committed to religious relativism, right? Rome was committed to having many gods uh, who had little jurisdictions and no supreme god because when you have many gods and there's no other god to call all the other ones into account, Caesar can do whatever he wants under the guise of political freedom, right? Of his own divinity, right? Because he was revered as a god himself. And so when you don't have one god who can call the other gods to account, it's incredibly convenient for you, right? To do what you want. To use power for yourself. That means that the relativism of Rome in the ancient world was actually a bid for power. It was, we tend to think, oh man, it's all good, it's all fine, it's all equally true, means somehow we're more tolerant. And like we want to spread the power. But that claim itself is actually a power play. Rome was gaining power by saying there's no one God, right? And so it was actually giving themselves freedom within the political realm to do what they wanted. There's a French philosopher, I've read some of his stuff over the years and dabbled a bit more this week, and his, his name is Michel Foucault. And he's a, anybody ever dabbled with Michel Foucault? Yeah, he's a, he's a trip, Right? French philosophers are also, like, that's a unique personality. And so um, you kind of just have to be jaded to do that, I think. But um, he essentially says this. Every single claim to truth, every truth claim is essentially a power play. This is Michel Foucault's contribution to philosophy. And I'm not arguing with his basic premise. I'm saying, okay, it, that's fine. Every truth claim has some kind of bid for power. And he's saying, if you claim you're right and somebody else is wrong, he's saying, it's a bid for power, right? You're saying you have spiritual power or spiritual authority in some realm. 
And so he says there's no truth per se. And when you make that claim, by the way, guess what that is? It's a bid for power, isn't it? Yeah. And, and in fact, and so I read the bit in one of his books where he actually owns it himself and says, yeah, this claim that there's no truth is a power play. Right? Like he, he gets it. He's honest, at least, academically, to say, yep, I'm saying I'm right about something. It's a power play. And so what I want to point out is we're not dealing with rationality versus bias. We're dealing with bias versus bias. Whenever we make an exclusive claim about Jesus, sure, that's biased. But if, if we're going to make a claim that there's, Jesus is equal among all the religious figures, guess what? We're biased and we're making an exclusive claim, aren't we? So um, if you say all religions are true, you, you actually have to admit and go, I'm actually making a power play right now. If you're asserting that it's all essentially leading to the same place, if the world's a mountain, existence is a mountain, and it's a race to the top, all religions get to the top, what are you saying? I'm at the top. I actually see what nobody, nobody else sees who's actually climbing the mountain. Right? Like that's, that's essentially what you're saying, which doesn't sound as humble as saying, in fact, I believe humanity is enslaved to selfishness called sin, and God graciously provided a savior who can lead us out of our captivity. Right? Like one of those is a self-assertive claim to perception, and the other one is saying we're all kind of hopeless and, apart from the grace of God. So we just need to be honest. And I want to say to you this morning, be honest as a Christian and say, yeah, I, I actually believe that 2,000 years ago there was a guy who died and rose again, and it uniquely qualified him to have authority in my life, and I think he has claim to everything that exists. And at the same time, I'm going to say, if, if you're here today and you're going, I, I'm not a Christian, I, great, I'm glad you're here. Let's just be honest and say, I'm rejecting the truth claims of Christ, saying that I, I actually want to make claim for my life, and I am going to say I have an equally closed-minded position. Right? I'm closed off to any authority or truth outside of myself. That's fine. Let's just be academically honest with our positions. And when you are bearing witness to Jesus in our culture, you get to invite people to just be honest. So yeah, that's all bids for power. But how do you begin to evaluate it? How do you decide which bias wins in the sense of which has most validity? Let's take a look at how it's lived. So those are the first two things related to thinking, right? That the truth claims of Christ wouldn't have been invented in its context, and they're also no more exclusive than any other relativistic truth claim. Are you with me so far? All right, let's see how it actually gets lived out then. In verse 13, um, oh, actually, let me mention this bit, um, Tertullian. All right, so just before we get to the next point, let me point this out. Uh, there was an early church father who wrestled with Roman officials over the validity of Christianity. His name was Tertullian. He lived in the 200s. Uh, anybody ever heard of Tertullian? It's a fun name. Like, I could imagine if he had an email, like, he would have to just shorten it, like, to Tert or whatever. It's like, everyone's like, what? How do you spell it? Anyway, so he's, he says this in his letter to Scapula in, like, the 200s, a Roman official. He's trying, he's trying to have some validity, right, in, in his context, and he's saying... We're worshipers of one God. There's your exclusive claim, right? There's the one God. However, he says it's, fun, it's a fundamental right, um, a, a privilege of nature that every man should worship according to his own convictions, right? So he's saying, I, I actually believe in exclusive claim, but I, I don't want to force it on anybody, right? This is the 200s, okay? So he's like, I'm not shoving it down anybody's throat. I'm just saying we think he's the one God, right? 
um, that, that every man should worship according to his own convictions. One man's religion neither harms nor helps another man. It is assuredly no part of religion to compel religion. So he's saying, I'm not interested in trying to make anybody else be a Jesus follower. Right? I, I, I want people to know Jesus. Right? Jesus will draw people to Jesus. That's his thing. He's alive. He's raised. His spirit's at work. A Christian, he says, is no enemy, or an enemy to none, least of all the emperor of Rome, whom he knows to be appointed by his God, and so he cannot but love and honor, and whose well-being, moreover, he must needs desire. All right? And so what he's saying is, because of my exclusive claim, I'm actually saying I want the best for you. Because the God I serve sacrificed himself for the best of other people. Right? And so he's saying, the, the logic of what I believe leads me to be inclusive. Right? The logic of what you believe leads you to be exclusive. Are you with me? And so this is Tertullian in the 200s, and he's, he's making this case. So let's then see how it ends up being lived out in the book of Acts. Look at verse 13 with me. Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished and recognized that they had been with Jesus. I love this verse. It's so powerful for us. Uneducated common men, they had to have been with Jesus. So good. So Peter and John, remember, are two guys who abandoned their best friend at his most vulnerable moment in life. That's Peter and John. Not a great track record. Let's just be clear. Like these, these are not your winners that you pick to say, I want that guy on my team. No, you go, actually, he's a failure, and he abandoned his best friend in his moment of need. I don't know that we'd take him, right? And yet, and yet they're here, and they're standing before people who are about to persecute them, and they're totally bold. They're unshaken. They're undaunted. And they just stand there, and they proclaim Christ. And so on the other side of Peter's greatest shame and disappointment, he has some kind of dynamic in his life that gave him boldness and courage. What in the world dynamic is that? What I want to say to you is that the exclusive claims of Christ lead to a transformed identity because he's not standing there relating as a failure. He's standing there relating as a son, as forgiven, right? He's standing there relating as a witness, and my experience tells me that people tend to shrink from courage when they're embarrassed, right? When you discipline your kids, right? Are they more bold or less bold in the moment of embarrassment when you catch them, right? Or uh, uh, when you are in a social setting where you know people know your mistakes, right? Are you bold or not bold, right? And, and what I want to say here is that the, this dynamic in Peter's life stirred a conviction and a boldness under threat that is totally different to anything the world has to offer. These guys had extraordinary courage. They were, had a strong, well-defined sense of who they were, especially under pressure. And their extraordinary boldness doesn't come from their extraordinary accomplishments. Right? In fact, what the officials say is that they're unschooled and ordinary or common. In other words, they have absolutely... No credentials to make them actually have a bold identity, right? And how do we build an identity as a society, right? We build it on our accomplishments, don't we? We look at what we've done, and it kind of gives us either confidence and courage, or if we look at what we've done and it hasn't been that great, then we tend to not relate to others with boldness and confidence, right? We build identity on, on accomplishment, 
school, career, kids, home, wealth, perhaps if you're a Christian, your ministry, service, or whatever. And we would expect extraordinary performance leads to extraordinary confidence, but in fact, what we have is a very ordinary record leading to extraordinary confidence. And if we were to build our identity that way on our accomplishments, I'm going to say, did you fail at anything this week? I I did. (laughs) At least a few times, right? So, um, forget confidence then, right? Uh, If Jesus is just a teacher, if he's just like all the other religious figures who just basically says to you, live this way, um, then you can go ahead and base your identity on performance and enjoy all the anxiety and lack of confidence that comes along with it. So, um, I think when we look at the book of Acts, we see something different. There's a totally different dynamic. When Jesus died, he died to absorb our guilt and shame, and so Peter's standing before these guys knowing his deepest disappointment has been forgiven. And when Jesus rose, he did so in victory, bringing us into the Father's presence as victors who share in his inheritance. And so Jesus, or Peter's standing there with hope and confidence. And so we can have an unshakable kind of confident sense of self if Jesus is exclusively unique. If he's common, and if he's like everybody else, then he hasn't dealt with the deepest brokenness of our lives. But if he has dealt with the deepest brokenness of our lives because of his exclusive, unique identity, then he doesn't just say to us, do what I taught, which leads us to pride or deflation, but he says, stand secure in me, in your union with me. And so when his work and his accomplishments are the basis for our identity, it leads not to a performance-oriented sense of confidence, but to a grace-oriented sense of confidence. So the only way we can have continuous boldness and confidence is if we allow the exclusive, unique nature of who Jesus is and what he's done to transform our identity, the deepest place of our life, because he's dealt with the worst of us. And he loves us. And he says, I've put my spirit in you so you can bear witness to my goodness. That leads to the fourth reality. The exclusive claims of Christ led to the most radically inclusive community the world has ever seen. Look at verse 21. Uh, So after the religious leaders had finished listening to what Peter and John had to say, uh, when they had had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of all the people who were praising God for what had happened. For the, the man on whom this sign was of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. Like, we can't argue with a changed life. Then verse 23, when they were released, they went to their friends and reported to the chief priests and the elders all that uh, had been said to them. And when they heard about it, they lifted up their voices together to God and said, they, they prayed, right? They prayed, they appealed to God's sovereignty, right? And they said, man, we're so thankful you're sovereign. We're so thankful for Jesus. We're so thankful for what you did. I'm going to skip down here. And then they pray for boldness, Uh, They pray for boldness, and they say, will you enable us to speak about your servant Jesus? Verse 31, when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. And so, you know, how do you evaluate one bias against another bias? I'd say that the proof is in the pudding of how it's lived. Right? And so when they were threatened for talking about Jesus, they prayed for boldness to keep talking about Jesus. And the Spirit filled them, and they kept talking about Jesus. And so they were shaken, in a sense, so that they could be unshakable. 
And God's going to keep doing this in your life, by the way. He'll shake you so that you're less shakable. And then season will go by and he'll shake you again and then you'll be less shakable. That's what he's doing in my life, right? He'll shake me of a little bit of fear and then I stand a little bit more confident. And he'll shake me of a little bit of just selfishness and then I'm le- you know, and so that's how it works. He shakes this stuff out so that we're more and more bold. And then the Spirit gave boldness to these Christians and it creates two responses. This boldness moves them in two ways. They open their mouths, they witness to Jesus, and they open their wallets. Who does that? Right? Look at verse 32. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own. That is a move of the Spirit, isn't it? The Spirit moves in your life when you go, right? Like, with joy and a smile. Right? That's the Spirit moving. Okay? And so uh, nobody said, my stuff's my stuff. But they had everything in common is what the text says, and with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon all of them. And they were, there, there was not a needy person among them. We're going to come back to this next week and take a look at what this means, um, but it's profound. There, there was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands and houses, uh, or houses, uh, they sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid at the apostles' feet. So in other words, some said, I have cash to give. Others said, I don't have cash, but I have stuff that can generate cash. And so, yeah, let's take care of the poor. Let's take care of each other. Let's share what we have in common. Let's pull our resources together to bear witness as a community to the resurrection of Jesus. That's what we do. That's what we do here as a church. It doesn't look the exact same. We have different delivery mechanisms. Nobody's feet are involved. It's just an app. But the, the, the reality is we, we do pull our resources and we love each other and we support the work of the ministry going forward. But look at this. Um, they, they, uh, there's a great example. Of, so it's a summary story and then at the end there's an example. Joseph, who was also called Barnabas was, uh, by the apostles, which means son of encouragement. Right? Generosity, man, always leads to encouragement. A Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and uh, brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. And we're going to talk about that a little bit more next week. But what I want to say here is when God is moving in your life, when the exclusive reality of Jesus hits you, it deals with the fear that keeps us from being generous and keeps us from being in community. When I actually know that I'm loved and secure because of what Jesus has done decisively in his cross and resurrection, I'm actually motivated and free of fear to love others and be generous, right? Because I'm going, I, I don't have to worry about all of, all of the things that I want to control because he's in control and he's proven that he loves me by actually taking my shame and my guilt and I've been loved to the core. How can I actually uh, withhold everything for myself? I can't, right? Because I actually am motivated by love. And so Christ's claim on their lives leads them to being open with their lives. The exclusivity of Christ led to an inclusivity like the world had never seen before because now you have 5,000 people who can't all know each other, who are from different cultures, even if they're Jews, they're, they're bound together. They're of one heart and they're of one mind and they're sharing their lives with each other. And here's what's at the heart of what we confess, right? If you think that the exclusive claim of Christ will lead to exclusivity, then you don't know Christ because at the heart of what we believe exclusively about Jesus is that, that, that God sent a man who was rejected 
And in his rejection, in, 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 in the process of being mocked and, and beaten, he continued to love and offer acceptance to the ones who were rejecting him. That's at the heart of what we believe. And so if we believe he's unique and exclusively so, it leads us, based on the content of what we believe about him, to be radically inclusive to the other. You, you can't know the forgiveness and uniqueness of Christ and be vengeful. Right? You can't know the uniqueness of Christ and, and hold a grudge forever. He, he just bumps it out because he overwhelms you with his generosity to you. And so it leads to an inclusivity where we actually don't just say, I want to be your friend, I act like your friend. I, I act towards you with your best interests in mind. That was what Tertullian was trying to say. And so at the heart of what we believe is someone who is forgiving and just and who uses his power to serve others, the reality of what we believe about Jesus is a good deed done to a crippled humanity. It doesn't lead to an inclusive community, but an exclusive one. Or, I'm sorry, an ex exclusive community, but an inclusive one. It won't lead you to shaming others or into vengeance or refusing relationship because you don't agree. It will lead you to be like Jesus towards others. And so we celebrate this, this amazing mystery at the tables, right? Where we say the gospel is an exclusive claim, but it's, it's not more exclusive than secularism or any other claim. It's actually the only way that makes us genuinely inclusive towards each other because God in Christ has acted genuinely inclusive towards us. He said, you can come to the table as a freeloader. You can come to the table and participate in my divine life by my spirit simply because I offer it to you. And so we recognize that our identities are transformed by his achievements, not ours, at the table. And we celebrate the uniqueness of Jesus that makes us into a community where our common standing is actually defined by his achievements, not ours. And what matters between us is grace. So he's the host of the party. We're common guests, and we're equally grateful to be at his table this morning. I want to invite the band up to lead us in worship and response to the message of Christ's exclusive uniqueness that transforms us into inclusive people. As you come and receive the bread and cup this morning, do so as a as a grateful guest at his table, knowing that he offers you infinite joy there to participate in the reality of who he is. Let's pray.